Blog Talk Radio. You are listening to the Run to Daylight Football Funcast with your host, Todd Burroughs. I'm your host, Todd Burroughs. Thank you for joining me today. I am joined by one of my favorite guests and one of the smartest people in the industry, and we'll get to him in a second, TJ Hernandez. I want to mention once again that um, you can also follow my articles on Rotoviz these days. And if you sign up for the $30 Rotoviz pass, whatever percentage I get from that, I'm turning over to Fantasy Cares which is Scott Fish's Toys for Tots charity. So if you go to my header, at Todd with one D from PA, and you sign up, you get, I think, pretty much every smart person in the industry gets a Rotoviz pass. But if you haven't yet and you go through me to get it, you will uh, also, in a, in a way, uh, donate to Fantasy Cares and Toys for Tots. So on to today's guest. He is the co-founder at Roster Coach, uh, associate editor at 444 Football, co-host of the DFS MVP podcast, a member of FSWA, and the leading voice in the industry against the bad beers known as IPAs, (laughs) TJ Hernandez. TJ, welcome to the show. Todd, my, my reputation precedes me. I can't seem to shake that one, so I've just been kind of uh, running with it, I guess, is my hashtag brand, as the kids like to say. But, um, I, yeah, IPAs are pretty terrible. They're awful. And, you know, I, one day, you know, sometimes you don't know why things are. I went into a bar recently. I don't drink much anymore. And I said, well, what does IPA stand for? And they explained to me, well, it was uh, the people from England, they made these beers because they'd go on long journeys and the hops would keep the beer fresh. And I'm like, so because they had to keep beer fresh, I have to have an awful tasting beer? Um, So that's... uh, yeah, I found it's basically out the just, they're, they're basically just chugging preservatives. So if you if you like IPA, good good for you. You're just uh, slowly killing yourself, even more so than the alcohol. Oh, nice. Well, <laughs> I, 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 I I'm not you know dogmatic about too many things, and I've had a couple that I didn't hate. Um, but you know, push comes to shove, there's like 500 other million beers I'd rather have. There's so many good choices in beers these days. Why you need to have an IPA, I'll never understand. Yeah, get outside your comfort zone, people. (laughs) All right. So um, I want to start with the thing that's nearest and dearest to your heart, which is the work that you're doing at Roster Coach. Why don't you tell people a little bit about what Roster Coach is, where they can find it, 
and um, some of the changes you've made to it since football season ended. Yeah, rostercoach.com is a website that I founded last year. We got it up and running before football season last year. And what it is, it's a a video-based classroom-style website that kind of brings courses to the user to give you an idea of how to approach the game of daily fantasy for whatever sport you play. And we also offer um, one-on-one coaching for anybody that's interested in a more intimate um, uh, experience, kind of like office hours if you're in college. And kind of the impetus behind the website was some of the most popular um, content that, that we see around for fantasy sports and especially DFS. Uh, not only is it written content, but it's content that just kind of tells you what to do instead of um, how to do it, kind of the old uh, teach a man to fish thing. So what, what I wanted to do was not only teach people how to play the game and really think about it and also touch on concepts that, that a lot of people uh, don't have the opportunity to see from some of the professional DFS players, concepts like um, bankroll management and just really in-depth research, but also bring that content uh, via a different platform. Uh, I, I think that we kind of tend to get stuck in our ways, whether it be how we produce content or just what we go about in our everyday lives. And I think there are a lot of people that are interested in learning how to play fantasy sports or DFS, but a lot of people don't want to sit down and read a book or read a 5,000 word article. So by putting this on video, um, actually seeing exactly what the coaches are doing through through their daily DFS process, uh, it, it allows users that don't want to go through that uh, reading process to see exactly what we're doing, kind of looking over our shoulder, uh, so to speak, as we're, we're going through the week or through the day, depending on uh, what sport you play. And um, this, this year, what we are going to be doing for NFL, we're, we're going to be expanding on our NFL library. We already had uh, a, a lot of really great courses, not to mention weekly content last year, again, looking at, at unique things such as game selection, bankroll management, um, lineup builders, instead of just giving you specific players to play, just kind of going through different thought process of how to build different lineups for specific games, not just GPPs, but small GPPs, large GPPs, 50-50s versus head-to-heads. Uh, this season, we're really going to be focusing in um, on not only expanding that, but bringing a more uh, intimate service. We have some, some really cool ideas for um, our coaching that uh, you, you'll see later. I don't want to spill the beans yet, but I think a lot of people are going to be, be very excited about it, hopefully be able to give people exposure to um, some really big names at, at a very affordable price. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that, and uh, hopefully everybody gets a chance to check it out and is excited about it as I am. Well, one of you know, I was a member during football season last year, and I, I will be again during uh, this upcoming season. You know, the people who listen to you and Chris on the radio, on your podcast, I guess is the right way to uh, say it, every week, they get to hear your favorites and to touch on this or that. But if you've ever wondered out there what TJ, all the work he does, and he puts in a tremendous amount of work each week during the NFL season, 
he distills it down to you in a couple minutes and goes position by position and gives you what exposure he's going to have to each player. And that's invaluable. And the way it helped me last year was I would have my list of players that I wanted to go forward with. But seeing your exposures, TJ, it really helped me to focus and to, you know, be better. And I, I, I just have to say that if you want to know what TJ is going to be playing this week, join Roster Coach, and you're going to get to see his exposures. And that, that was my favorite part of the service. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, I mean, with DFS, especially with something like large field GPPs, there's obviously more than one way to skin a cat. One of the uh, great things I think about roster coach is that with those, those, that type of content, um, I'm not the only one doing it. So you, you see similar content, but you can see different thought process. So uh, that, I think that's also very valuable as well from, from some of the other coaches seeing similar videos. Yeah, and I think for each person, we'll find what their favorite thing is if they join. But I highly recommend the service. I think everyone should, um, you know, who, who who really wants to understand DFS. Also, the visual aspect adds something that, like you said, you just can't get from reading words. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so let's get into the work that you've been doing in the off season. Recently, you've been doing something that you did last year, which is regression candidates by position. I want to go position by position quickly, but before we do that, why don't you explain to people the process that goes into these articles? Yeah, you, you talked about near and dear to my heart with Roster Coach, and this is another series that's uh, kind of my baby. It, it's uh, it's based on a a metric that I call red zone expected value, and um, basically what I'm doing is I'm looking for players that are expected to regress in the touchdown column, and, and the way I do that is uh, by taking historical plays, um, every single play over the last three years, uh, that started inside the red zone and looking at the starting field position, calculating the percent chance of a touchdown, um, depending on whether it's a rush um, or a target to a running back wide receiver or tight end, all those plays are going to have different expectations and then extrapolating an expected point total. So for example, a, um, a pass starting between the 16 and the 20 yard line has about an 11% chance of a touchdown we multiply that by six points you get an expected value of 0.65 points so what i do is i go through every single red zone play from last year compare it to expected scoring rates um, get a score that we expect and then get the actual points that those players produced on red zone touchdowns we can look at the difference of those numbers and it gives us an idea or at least a starting point of players that are due for touchdown regression Um, once we have that we can Uh, take that pool of players that scored either above or below expected value and then look at things like scoring rates, uh, looking at overall touchdown rates or or touchdown rates inside uh, the red zone. And by working um, backwards instead of just looking at red zone opportunity where it's all lumped together, I think that gives us a little more accurate snapshot of exactly how a player should have done rather than just saying something like, oh, he had 10, uh, 10 red zone targets, but only scored 
uh, three touchdowns. If all of that player's tar- red zone targets were coming from the 20-yard the line, he's going to have a very expectation, different expectation than someone getting a target from, say, inside the five. So um, that's just kind of the quick methodology there. And the, um, the really interesting thing about that is we talk a lot in MFL 10s about cracking ADP, right, and finding those guys <laughs> who can outperform their ADP. I think most people who do this, myself included, we look at their total stats and we kind of put people in tears based on that. But the advantage of this whole regression conversation is I think it helps you to crack the ADPs a little bit. Yeah, I 100% agree, and especially so in uh, a format like MFL 10 where it doesn't only favor uh, value like in a traditional redraft league, but it's it's basically winner all. I mean, there there is some payout for credit for the next season to second place, third place in MFL 25. But really, uh, you're going you're going for the gold. So if you have these guys that are are boomer bust, like we like to say, um, and then you throw in some some regression expectation, we can get a really good idea of players that have boom potential if we could find someone that is getting a lot of touchdown expectancy but just didn't uh, capitalize on that in the previous season. We talked before the show a little bit about how much we've got to cover and that I wanted to cover in 45 minutes to an hour. So, um, But quickly, if you could rate the positions, you know, quarterback, running back, wide receiver, and tight end, mm-hmm. one to four by – which one TD regression you find to be most important to least important and feel free to have ties if needed. Yeah. Um, I, I think it kind of goes in the order you're, you said, and the reason being volume um, volume is going to drive our, uh, our expected value. And the, the more volume a player has, the closer that they are going to be to that expected value. So quarterbacks in general are going to get the most volume. They're going to be throwing, uh, they're going to be touching the ball in every play, and especially the teams that are throwing a lot in the red zone, uh, we get a really good idea of what their scoring rate should be. Running backs to a little bit lesser degree, and it gets a little messy with running backs because we're combining um, rushes and targets. Like I said, there's different expectation for every position for targets. Um, And then wide receivers and tight ends are just seeing less volume. So uh, you you can see long stretches of players uh, not not hitting their expected rate um, at those receiver positions, uh, wide receiver and tight end. So I I would rank it just like that, quarterback, running back, wide receiver, tight end, just because of volume. In other words, most likely to see regression or less Mm -hmm. likely to see regression. Yeah, the the players with the most volume, the quarterbacks are going to be the most likely to regress to their expected rate. Okay, that makes a ton of sense. And since we started with quarterbacks, looking at your article on 4 for 4, you have one guy who I um, just wrote, am in the process of writing about in one of my articles, Marcus Mariota, um, in as far as value, um, with the news of Eric Decker being signed, um, he's actually passed Cam Newton and Kirk Cousins in ADP, and yet you have him as a negative touchdown regression candidate. What are your mm-hmm. thoughts on that as it relates to his current ADP? 
Yeah, uh, I think when people look at these articles, they have to understand the point that I'm trying to get across. I think a lot of people see negative touchdown regression candidate automatically assume that that's a player that you don't target. They're going to have a bad season. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying based on uh, history and based on scoring rates that these players outperformed what they expected the year before, and they've put up rates that just are not sustainable. So Marcus Mariota is a player that uh, last year he put up a red zone touchdown rate of 33%, which now is his career red zone touchdown rate, has a touchdown rate for his career of 5.5%. Last year posted almost 6%. Um, Those are numbers, especially in the red zone, that exceed the best quarterbacks by so far that even with the new weapons, it's just not a number that's sustainable. No uh, other quarterback in the league for their career has a red zone touchdown rate above 28%. So when we look at that and we consider the quality of some of the quarterbacks in the league, like the Aaron Rodgers, um, like the Tom Brady's, we can't expect Mario to, to maintain a 33% touchdown rate. Now, can he match his numbers from last year? Obviously, he has a lot better uh, weapons around him. He is uh, he, he could see more volume and continue to be as efficient, at least uh, overall. And I think that is something that people need to keep in mind when looking at these numbers, that if you are going to draft Marcus Mariota as somebody that is going to be in that top five quarterback range, you need to expect a huge uptick in volume. I know people like to look at the weapons and say he's going to do exactly what he did. But when we look at these numbers, when we look at how far over expectation he has been scoring, those rate numbers are sure to regress. I can almost guarantee it. It's just are you confident enough that the volume is going to go up that high to uh, to pay for him? My answer to that is no, just because the nature and supply-demand uh, aspect of the quarterback should point you to the ultimate decision that you can win on the position because those points are replaceable. Yeah, and, and, and I made a, a tweet today because Kirk Cousins has started dropping into the ninth round, and I took him in two straight drafts. And I said uh, in my tweet, you know, give me a pretty much as, as as much Kirk Cousins as you want to give me in the ninth round as possible. Um, and, and again, like you said, it's not that you don't like um, Mariota, but we have to make a choice in our portfolio and, our, and in our exposure. And if I can wait an extra round and get Kirk Cousins, who is a positive touchdown regression candidate, uh, I'm going to do that over Mariota. Do you think that I'm looking at it the way you intended? Yeah, I I love that call. And uh, Kirk Cousins is a guy that actually out of all the players in the league, all the quarterbacks in the league, scored the furthest below red zone expectation last year and um, Andy Dalton's a guy that I've been talking up as as well but anybody that's been paying attention in fantasy circles has heard Dalton's name as a regression candidate Kirk Cousins isn't one uh, that I've heard talked about much but when when we look at the data um, he's a guy that should have scored um, about 20 red zone touchdowns he threw just 14 last year uh, and he had a red zone touchdown rate of under six, under 17% for his career. He's right around 22, 23%, which is about the league average. And when you consider what happened to Cousins last year, he had Jordan Reed sitting out for four games, and two of his main targets, Pierre Garçon and Deshaun Jackson, are 
arguably two of the worst red zone targets in the league um, of 49 qualifying players. They rank 42nd and 49th uh, respectively in their career red zone touchdown rate. So not necessarily a Cousins thing. It might be just that he was missing those weapons. Bring in Terrell Pryor, who converted 31% of his red zone touchdowns in his first year as a full-time receiver, um, and add that to the expected Kirk Cousins regression. The fact that I just think he's actually a really good quarterback. If we look at his career efficiency metrics across the board, whether it be um, something like touchdown rate or um, adjusted net adjusted net yards per attempt, um, he's up there with guys like Russell Wilson and Tom Brady. So uh, I think he is somebody that is line as much under the radar as possible for someone that finished as a top six quarterback. Um, but I, I really like him this year. Yeah. And uh, you know, in, in I did uh, not nearly as in depth of a study as you, but I did that uh, article on, on uh, quarterbacks and Andy Dalton is being drafted as the 16th um, QB uh, when I did the article a couple weeks ago, and he scored the 16th most points per game last year with A.J. Green out and Tyler Eifert out for huge parts of the season. That alone, to me, says a buy on Andy Dalton. So we'll move over to the wide receiver position. Um, negative touchdown uh, regression candidates include Jordy Nelson, Sterling Shepard, Richard Matthews, and Devontae Adams. The one I want to ask you about is Devontae Adams, um, because I, I thought I also wrote, read on Twitter that you happen to like Adams a lot. And again, this regression is just part of a puzzle we're putting together. Why don't you put the whole Devontae Adams puzzle together for us? Yeah, so the the interesting thing about the, the Packers offense is we know them as a high-powered offense, so when they put up gaudy numbers, it's not a surprise, but if we just look at them as an entirety last year, they really performed way over expectation, even for an Aaron Rodgers offense. I wrote up Aaron Rodgers as a slight negative regression candidate. Um, I still think he has the potential to finish as a QB1, obviously, but maybe not match his 40-touchdown uh, total from last year. He threw the most uh, pass attempts in his career last year. Also had the highest pass percentage inside the red zone in the Aaron Rodgers-Mike McCarthy era. Uh, so those are a couple things that I think will uh, come down a little bit considering that they did spend two draft picks on a running back. The thing about Devontae Adams is he scored at, at such a high rate, um, not just for his team, but just historically, over the last 10 years, we've seen 434 players see 100 targets in a season. Only 12 posted a higher touchdown rate than Devontae Adams. He scored on 9.9% of his targets last year. And uh, the only player to, to repeat that, a 9% touchdown rate in consecutive seasons, is Rob Gronkowski. Now, we know Devontae Adams isn't the touchdown scorer Rob Gronkowski is. And uh, the concern with Adams over especially over his teammates, Jordy Nelson and Aaron Rodgers, is Rodgers and Nelson have a history of being very, very efficient. Devontae Adams, on the flip side, has a history of not being good, whether it be dropping the ball or just finding the end zone, um, albeit a short career. 
his outlier shows that uh, he had performed well over what we expect. Even with that near 10% touchdown rate last year, his career touchdown rate is still under 6%. That's very good compared to the average, but when you have that uh, big of an outlier in such a short career, you would expect it to push that number up a little bit more. Uh, so with that expected regression, not just from Adams, but the team as a whole, and then the addition of someone like Martellus Bennett, who uh, should uh, get at least a, a few of those red zone targets, um, I'm I'm not really someone that's going out of my way to draft uh, Devontae Adams. And that makes sense, and that that's really good stuff. On the positive regression side, Tyrell Williams. It's a real interesting case because on one hand, he showed what I like to call a durable asset, uh, which is talent, right? It, uh, when you have talent, you know, situations can change, but talent is steady, right? And that, I, I wrote about that a little bit in my Warren Buffett article and how he picks stocks. And I think Terrell Williams has that durable asset of talent. And I think he's one of the better values out on the market right now. Uh, Mike Williams' stock, Rotodoc pointed this out on the on the road of his Slack chat that while Mike Williams' ADP is in free fall, none of the other uh, Chargers have really gone up much, and I I think Tyrell Williams is one of the better value um, wide receivers right now at ADP. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Um, I, this is one of those offenses where there's going to be a, a very wide range of outcomes for, for all players involved, uh, maybe save Phillip Rivers because he's going to be do, do, he's the one that's going to be uh, dishing out all of those throws. Uh, I, I think people remember that Melvin Gordon scored all those touchdowns last year and that sticks in, in everyone's head not realizing that the Chargers were one of the pass-heaviest teams in the red zone last year, had the um, eighth-highest red zone passing rate of any team. And Rivers is a guy that's consistently been one of the most efficient touchdown scorers in the league. He threw a lot of interceptions last year, which killed uh, a lot of potential scoring for his weapons. And one of those guys was Tyrell Williams. Um, I, I don't know if people realize how much he liked Williams in the red zone. Only 14 wide receivers saw more red zone targets than Tyrell Williams last year, uh, but he only scored on two of those. We would have expected based on the starting field position of those targets for him to score um, at least four red zone touchdowns. And, and we know that a couple touchdowns can swing things um, in what the overall rankings look like at the end of the year. But obviously, um, with, within a single week, uh, fantasy football is a game of weekly scoring. And if you're missing out on uh, a touchdown a couple of weeks, that could, that could cost you a playoff spot. And obviously we know how valuable that is. A lot of people are talking about the um, decline of Antonio Gates, which obviously has to happen at some point, and automatically thinking that that just goes right over to Hunter Henry. But uh, Williams is a guy that built up a rapport with Philip Rivers last year. We don't know what we're going to get out of Keenan Allen. Then we have rookie Mike Williams, who we don't even know when he's going to see the field at this point. So when I'm faced with situations like this, um, I want the most viable, cheap guy. And uh, unless you are buying up Antonio Gates, that's Tyrell Williams right now. I, I agree. <clears throat> and while I would love to go into running backs in depth and tight ends in depth, uh, 
everyone's going to have to go check that out on four for four. I want to get into the other parts of our discussion and not keep uh, TJ here uh, too long. And so we'll, we'll, we'll move into the MFL 10s, and you've been doing a lot of work on MFL 10s. The first one that kind of caught my eye is um, your series that you've been doing, where you interview a lot of people who do a lot of MFL 10s, and you did your own answers as well, but for the people who might not have seen it, how many MFL 10s have you done in the past, and how many are you planning on doing this year? Yeah, last year, I building up roster coach and going full-time fantasy for the first time. Um, you might think I have more time to do MFL 10s, but I actually had less. So I only got about 20 in last year. The previous year, I did 65 uh, my goal this year is to get somewhere in the 45 to 50 range. Um, I'm sitting at about 25 live ones right now, uh, so I'll be ramping up the volume a, a little bit more down the stretch. But uh, uh, I do like to have a little bit of a life out of fantasy. You might not believe that, uh, but I don't like to have too many going at a time. It, it is a small investment, but it's more just to um, – stay sharp on what's going on throughout the summer and hopefully get a nice little Christmas bonus at the end of the year. So I'm not playing hundreds like some of these guys, but I still do take it uh, very seriously and, and read and do as much content as possible like that series that you mentioned. Yeah, I'm up to 85, I think it is this year, or 82. And uh, I did 110 last year, so I'm going to blow through that. Last two years when I did them, though, I hadn't done any pre-NFL draft, I, you know, because I don't study rookies like a lot of people, mm -hmm. and I, I, I don't like putting myself in situations where I've got a blind spot. But someone talked me into it, and I, I kind of really enjoyed the, the pre-NFL draft and the pre-free agency. If you've got an eye for, again, that whole concept of durable, um, of durable ability and talent. You know, I was getting Pierre Garçon in the 12th, 13th round simply because he hadn't signed anywhere. As soon as he signed, he went not only past where I consider his value to be, but beyond it. Um, but I, I heard you on the Road of His Pod. You did a really uh, – one of the big questions you ask everybody is about exposure. And it's one of my big focuses as I do these MFL 10s. At the very least, I always want to be aware of where my exposure is and where it might not be. Why don't you share with people you, – you, you are okay with having a little more exposure than some of the other guys like myself um, who, who, who think about exposure. Yeah, the, the industry standard, uh, or at least what it seems like the industry standard at this point, is at least on early round picks to be somewhere in the 25 to 35% range. Obviously, uh, the later you get in the draft, the more – lenient you could be on that just because you're investing uh, less capital. I'm of the thinking that we think about these uh, MFL 10s in terms of upside, and a lot of people look at that on the micro level, just looking at a single team and how can you maximize the upside for that team. 
if you're limiting yourself to 30% exposure to a player, um, you're limiting the upside of your overall portfolio. So it's an extreme example. You're not going to hit every year and you do run the risk of having a very bad year. But if you look at someone um, like, like David Johnson last year who had a ridiculously high scoring rate and you were skipping over him just for the sake of exposure, uh, then you cost yourself a lot of money probably. And obviously there is a flip side to that. If it doesn't work out, you might be um, costing yourself a lot of money by investing in a player that, that doesn't hit. But that kind of comes down to what's your confidence in player evaluation. And that's why we kind of do build in um, a, a barbell type model to our approach. If you are going very heavy on a player, then uh, maybe you might want to hedge that by just having very diversified teams elsewhere, maybe safer teams. But I think that people probably are costing themselves a little bit of money by sticking to a really low percentage. I don't know what the exact number is, but I would say if you're slightly higher than uh, what the public is doing, that's probably the right move just because you're not only diversifying your play, player shares, uh, you're diversifying your approach to the game. So you, you want to maximize that upside. And I, I think you can be a little more aggressive than, than what people tend to do in terms of trying to scatter their shares as thinly as possible. Um, then you're kind of making yourself more susceptible uh, just to the, the natural variance of, of the game, and you're, you're not going to have that huge season. Now, if you're somebody that's just trying to squeak out a small profit, that's fine, but if you really want to bring it home in December and be at the top of that leaderboard uh, in terms of win rate at the end of the year, I think you probably want to be a little more risky, and, and it's uncomfortable, but if you are somebody that's played a lot of DFS, then you might be uh, a little more comfortable going all in on some of these guys. Now, as I mentioned, the the earlier that a player um, is being drafted, you might want to be a, a little more hesitant, uh, maybe 25%. But if we're getting, say, the, the third or fourth round, I'm, I'm generally going to be a little bit more aggressive than the crowd. Now, that's not to say I'm going to go 50% on a guy, but if I'm going 40% when the field's going 30%, that's just a, a built-in edge that I have. Well, and, you know, it's interesting because I think, you know, as much as we – first of all, I think the key is that everyone should pick that those percentages for themselves. I think what you don't want to do is to wake up one day with percentages you're not comfortable with. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think planning your percentages, checking on them pretty regularly is um, something I advise. And then, you know, in looking at your – uh, percentages so far. I was surprised that you really don't have one player so far with 40%. And again, it, it, because of the nature of MFL 10s, a lot of times you can't get a lot of a guy simply because he's just going to be gone, you know, because we're taking different draft positions each time, unless you want to really just you know, take a guy a round or two ahead of his ADP, it's not that easy to run up heavy exposures. Yeah, so so this goes um, to a couple things. You, I mentioned earlier that I'm, I'm in about 25 so far with, I think, 15 um, completed. And the reason my exposures aren't high on any players yet is because something you talked about starting early in the year, um, 
as, if you start early in the year with MFL tens, your your portfolio is naturally going to get diversified. And if you have studied even basic statistics, then um, one thing that you'll find out is that as any random sample approaches a, a count of about 30, we're going to start to see a somewhat normal distribution of variance. So basically what that means is if you start early in the draft season and spread them out somewhat evenly, you should get a pretty decent exposure to all the players that, that, um, that are viable. And then once you get closer to that 30 draft number, then you could start managing more, more meticulously, not just your player shares, but also things like your roster construction strategies. So pretty much this is the tipping point of the season where I kind of let all the drafts come to me. As we get closer to the year, we start seeing softer ADPs. I'll really start forcing the issue, not just on the guys that I like, um, but on different roster construction strategies. That's interesting. And I was looking at a tweet. If you go on TJ's timeline, he took the quarterback tight end and defense. And so, like, you went through two quarterback, three tight end, three defense, and then two, three, two, three, two, two, pretty much every variation of it. You put in the total percentage of lineups in 2017 and then the winning percentage of each one. Um, in reviewing that, um, TJ, did you come up with a favorite for yourself? Yeah, I came up with um, favorite concepts, not necessarily a, a favorite specific construction. And, and before I get into it, I, I got to give a shout out to Mike Beers, um, who works at Rotoviz with you, because he's kind of been the godfather of, of this concept so far. I just kind of want to take a little bit of a zoomed out look instead of looking at overall roster construction strategies. Um, just thinking, I, I did it, I framed it as quarterback, tight end defense, but you could flip around and frame it as how many running backs and wide receivers you'd be making. And, and the reason I kind of got to this point is because it, I, I was looking at these overall roster constructions that uh, Mike had put together and it, I noticed some patterns, and one thing that it seemed like is you wanted more more flex positions if possible and um, more more wide receivers, but we won't touch on the wide receiver for now. But in terms of the quarterback, tight end, um, defensive rates, what, what I did find is it's very obvious that we don't want three at each position because we're just taking on uh, too much at positions that aren't flex eligible in those third quarterbacks and third defenses together aren't probably aren't giving us um, enough of a, a edge in terms of increased value. So I, I went back and looked at uh, all teams that, that use that three, three, three strategy and they, they turn in a win rate of just six and a half percent. That kind of got me thinking if, if the three, three, three strategy doesn't work in terms of quarterback tight end defense, um, is, is there something to be said to just avoiding a, a three quarterback, three defense combo altogether, that was just as bad. So not only is, is allocating nine spots to those positions, but allocating six spots to the quarterback defense uh, position specifically looks like it's, it's probably not the best strategy out of the, uh, the eight combinations possible. Um, Five of the top eight were uh, just two quarterbacks. So unless you're in an extreme situation where you really 
loved the quarterback position, just really missed out on a run. I think you want to kind of embrace that variance, look for the upside, find two quarterbacks that are at least going to start for the whole season. Um, make sure those those bye weeks aren't matched up, and then kind of go from there. So I, I think that the sweet spot looks like it's seven or eight uh, positions allocated to those onesie positions, and you're going to find yourself doing very well as long as you avoid that three-three combo at quarterback and defense. Yeah, and I, I I've always been a two quarterback guy. You and I again were talking a little bit before the show about quarterback scoring and how flat it can be. And that's that's our advantage in taking only two quarterbacks. They don't tend to get hurt as much, um, and they tend to score on the flattest plane of descent, which means that you can you know get away with two of them. The only time I take a third quarterback is if I wait too long and the draft kind of gets ahead of me, and I end up with Alex Smith as my second quarterback and my first quarterback I don't love. Uh, I, I might take a third quarterback, but in general I'm a two-quarterback guy. But I want to get into a deeper discussion, you know, and I meant to give Mike Beers the, uh, the props that you did, so I'm glad you did. He is the godfather of this stuff, and he does an amazing job with it. Um, and I'm not in any way advocating that roster construction isn't important because we know it is. But when you look at the top of TJ's chart, you'll see 9.6 versus 9.5 versus 9.2 versus 8.7 for the top four choices. That means the top four choices, not only doesn't it, does it not take into effect which of those three positions you took, but it also is overall less than 1% difference, where TJ, men, you mentioned a little while ago that David Johnson, again, from Mike Beer's um, good work, we know that David Johnson was on 25% of all winning teams last year. And, you know, you compare that to the average running back, and there's a 13 14% difference. So, can you take us through, because I know you're a big one for getting your guys, can you take us through the blend of picking a, the, you know, your, your player versus picking your roster construction? Because at times we end up having it seemingly to choose between the two. Sure. So um, kind of a two-part question there. And I'll start with how I'm going to choose my, my roster allocation. Again, I'm not really going to be – if you're someone that's only playing, say, 10 MFL 10s, then this should go out the window a little bit. You should be maximizing the upside for each individual team and uh, getting the best players possible. Uh, well, you always want to get the best players possible, but just get those guys you're high on and not worry so much about exposures and roster construction rates. But I think the way – you mentioned how close these win rates are. You're, it looks like you're splitting hairs. Um, but the way to really exploit these roster construction strategies, in my opinion, is to uh, get an idea of what the field's doing and then uh, diversify yourself against that. It's kind of a GPP strategy for anyone that plays DFS. So what you can do is you can go on a site like fantasyadhd.com and you can actually download exactly how many positions are going uh, throughout the draft in MFL 10s, and that, that's live data. So, for example, one of the biggest, um, the, one of the most popular um, 
strategies this year is it is a two six seven three two strategy two quarterbacks six running backs seven wide receiver three tight end two defense so if we know that the field is using that 17 percent of the time and it had a a 9.7 percent win rate last year then we can look at something like a two five seven three three strategy uh, that's only be, being used 5% of the time right now and had a slightly higher win rate. So we can look at those, build our portfolio so that we know what the field's doing but never match up with them. So if we think a strategy is a very good strategy, we want to look at the field and do it more often than they're doing. If we think that it's a strategy that's just okay but it's too popular, then you want to do it less in your portfolio. So, for example, right now I've used um, – that a two five eight three two strategy thirteen percent of the time the field's only using it about eight percent of the time and that had one of the higher win rates in the league last year. Um, but again, wait until you're around that thirty to forty MFL ten mark before you really even start thinking about those things. Um, and, and then it's kind of the same process with my players, like I mentioned. Uh, as we get later into the season, I'm going to start drilling down on those guys that I'm very high on and by. Um, starting early, I've already been able to kind of manage my shares, not having to reach because guys that I predicted, uh, at least some of them I predicted correctly, would go up or down in price. I can adjust my draft strategy as such. Yeah, that, that's really good information. And uh, it's kind of, again, I've been advocating, um, you know, thinking about MFL 10s a lot more like 16 individual weeks of DFS and looking for more correlations because essentially that's what it is. It's 16 weeks of DFS that's added together and is cumulative. So all the little correlations that you make, as long as you're not dropping a tier to do it is an advantage. And you're saying, I think if I understand you correctly to do the same thing with roster construction. Yeah, absolutely. And I really like the point you make about thinking about it as, as different DFS weeks. I mean, um, if you're, if you get say a David Johnson from last year and then an unexpected passing game, a quarterback that catch fire, if you think it's going to be Andy Dalton this year and you compare him up uh, with a say, I mean, Tyler Eifert's not cheap, but if you get uh, them together and then, and then the running back that takes over the lead, um, you're probably going to win a lot of your leagues just by having that very correlated passing game and a dominant running back. Obviously, we don't know exactly who that's going to be, but we can make some pretty educated guesses on it. Well, and again, because of the nature of exposure and the nature of tiers, what I've taken to doing is I draft my first five or six rounds pretty much on a BPA strategy and how the draft is falling to me. And because we do take quarterbacks later, I mean, even Aaron Rodgers, you typically don't take until you've got a couple spots. But, you know, I've got like we talked about the Kirk Cousins, Cam Newton, Russell Wilson kind of area and David Carr and Jameis Winston and Marcus Mariota. They all go within about a round of each other, a round to a round and a half. So what I do when I get into that range is I'll go look at my wide receivers and see who I've already got. And I'm not going to drop down a tier to a, you know, a quarterback that I don't have rated as well, 
but maybe I'll wait on my quarterback if there's no correlations in the eighth or ninth round. But if, I've, if I'm sitting there, I mean, I'm not a big Jameis Winston guy. He's at the bottom of my tier. But if Mike Evans is my first-round pick, I'm going to take Jameis Winston in that draft. And, you know, and then I'm going to try and correlate him with a quarterback you know, if you've read, you know, if you, if, for those who read my article on uh, using home splits to pick your quarterback, you know, go find weeks where Jameis Winston doesn't match up with uh, home matchups where, you know, the second quarterback has a lot of home games on different weeks than Jameis does. So that way, if Jameis has a big home week with Mike Evans, you've put those points on the board he's on the road they have a bad week now you've got your quarterback correlated as well and the same thing with defense you know you pick your running backs and there's you know we all know how volatile defenses are if I'm sitting there even though the correlation isn't huge and I've got Todd Gurley and the Rams are on the board and two other teams I have about the same I'll take the Rams you know just hoping to as you said we're trying to win here, and and so that's been my focus this off season, just trying to supercharge my lineups a bit. Yeah, I think people are. I know people are generally risk averse, and that does not translate well into into a game like MFL since we repeat it so many times. But I think it always gets lost that this is a winner take all game. Uh, so especially MFL tens, if you're drafting now, um, you're drafting against some of the sharpest people uh, in the world, really. People that are playing MFL tens are playing fantasy football year-round pretty much. Um, so anytime you could squeak out a very small edge, that's going to pay dividends uh, in the long run. One of my favorite players, TJ, early in the, in the drafts, uh, early in draft season, was a guy I heard you advocate for as well, DeAndre Washington. But as we all tend to do when guys like you and Evan Silva are touting guys, it can really raise their ADP. And recently, you know, where I knew I could get DeAndre Washington pretty much every 20th round, his ADP has now gotten him up to about the 16th round. And Jalen Richard is sitting there often in the 20th round. I'm just curious because I know you're a big uh, Washington guy. If it might be time to put our attention to Jalen Richard. Uh, so I think when you're looking at this specific situation, um, what you have to do is really be able to evaluate what your running back core looks like on the specific MFL 10 team. Uh, I've talked about this a little bit this year that if you're going to kind of arbitrage on the same team or stack a backfield. I want to do it um, across my portfolio, not necessarily on the same team. That way, if that guy does hit, then um, it, I'm, I'm not losing a roster spot on, on that um, specific roster by taking two players from the same backfield. I think this is a little bit more of a unique situation because Richard, regardless of what happens with Lynch, is probably going to keep a, a very specific role um, kind of the easy comp is like the Darren Sproles role in the Raiders offense. He's not going to be a guy that they're just going to hand off to uh, 15 to 20 times, even if, if Marshawn goes down. Now, DeAndre Washington, on the other hand, he, he has standalone value on that team because the Raiders are a team that want to use a running back committee because they do know Washington or Richard are good. We saw it last year uh, using all three of their running backs and never giving any running back 
uh, more than two-thirds of the touches outside of just two games last season, and that was with uh, running back injured. Um, as far as Washington goes and his price, his price has moved up, but the, the way I'm thinking about it is if we're looking at a, at a traditional redraft league, he'd still probably be going roughly undrafted if he's going in the 16th round. So you're still probably drafting him as your fifth or sixth running back. Um, it's still late enough in the draft where you're not really spending much capital on him. Uh, you're, you're not giving up too much. There aren't a lot of guys in that range that you're just dying to, to get instead of him. So I'm still fine loading up on Washington. And uh, Richard's a guy that I've always been sprinkling in, but I don't think he necessarily has the league-winning upside of Washington because of the reasons that I stated. Gotcha. Um, I, I think that, uh, that, you know, one one thing that I advocated in an early article back when they, you could get them in the 19th and 20th round was why not get both of them if, you know, again, it's not you can't do it every draft because, you know, like you said, you don't want to have seven running backs and rarely do you want to have six. But, um, you know, for a while I was, you know, I was noticing all these late running back values like Vereen and Chris Thompson, a lot of guys who moved up, you used to be able to get in the last five rounds. I started doing a bunch of zero RB drafts based on what I was seeing. And in a couple of those, I stacked Richard and Washington because, like you said, I, I think both of them will have standalone value in that offense. And if Marshawn Lynch gets hurt, which is very possible, whoever emerges as the lead guy each week, you would have huge upside with. I thought it was a really interesting low-risk, high-reward play for a certain amount of my portfolio. But um, any last thoughts on MFL 10? I I do want to talk a little uh, Scott Fishbowl with you before I let you go. Yeah, I don't know that there's too many things that we didn't um, that we didn't touch on as far as how I'm thinking about the how the game's going, whatnot. If if you haven't started them, I, I probably want to fire them up as as soon as possible. One thing that we're already seeing and we'll, we'll definitely see by the time uh, we get into late July is that as more uh, casual drafters enter the mix, it's going to be harder to to get exposure to some players you like. Um, namely big-name quarterbacks, because those values are going to get driven uh, uh, really, really high. They're already pretty high right now, but you can still kind of um, luck box into like a Drew Brees in in the sixth round or a Cam in the eighth. I don't think we're going to see that happening uh, once we get past the 4th of July holiday. Gotcha. And, yeah, and, and, and I know a lot of people like MFL 10s later in the process, because you get an influx of guys who aren't as um, skilled, but there's also way more information out there. And I find it a little harder sometimes to find an edge as you get closer to the season, because, uh, you know, it's harder to outwork people for information. Yeah. I mean, if if you're just, again, it kind of comes down to if you're going to be playing high volume, if you're going to eclipse that 40 or 50 mark, um, I think it makes a lot more sense to spread it out over the course of the entire draft season. If you're only going to play five or 10, uh, I get waiting a little bit longer and not wanting to uh, put 20% of your NFL 10 bankroll in some uh, sketchy situation. So I, I get why people want to do it and I get why they want to play uh, against uh, lesser competition. But because I'm a, a little bit high volume, I want to spread it out a little bit more. 
Okay, I um, definitely I'm commissioning a league, and a guy took a wrong pick, and he's 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 uh, tweeting at me. So uh, I'm going to ignore him for, for another ten minutes. And um, what I want to do is you and I talk. Sorry about that, but uh, w- w- I had you on last year, and we we did a whole show on SFB scoring, and. You know, Scott did it to us again this year. He completely, like, threw everything up in the air. It's completely different and new. Um, I wanted to get your takes on the overall Scott Fish scoring. Um, in, in listening to you on Twitter, um, I think we're thinking pretty similarly about some of the challenges you're going to face when you draft this year. Yeah, um, so this is my fourth year in the Scott Fishbowl, I think. When when I started, I think there were only 180 participants in it. We're up to 720 now, so I'm lucky to uh, get in when I did. Otherwise, I might not be able to uh, to get through the ropes into this thing. But, uh, yeah, so so what we're looking at this year for those that are playing, if, if you haven't seen it yet, um, last year we had a, a point per carry with half PPR, I believe. Um, it's, it remains a super flex league, but uh, quarterback scoring got bumped up to six points per touchdown, and then we have points per first down with no PPR, no points per carry, and the tight ends are two and a half points, an additional point and a half um, per first down. So a tight end first down is worth uh, two and a half points. So we got some some scoring systems and, and roster requirements that a lot of people, even very experienced fantasy people, probably aren't familiar with and are probably finding a hard time uh, running projections on because a lot of people aren't, or no one outside of uh, shameless plug four for four dot com is projecting first downs that I know of. Yeah, and and what, what one thing I do these SFB seven pods where I interview three to four people who are going to be in, and I'm really amazed at how many of them are still talking about taking wide receivers with their first round pick. Mm-hmm. Um, I I. I personally wouldn't advise that I certainly will not be taking a, I don't care if it's Antonio Brown and it's the second round I'm gonna you know I think one of the key things we're gonna have to do in this draft is show some impulse control because it is so different um, last year you were a huge proponent of a heavy running back strategy uh, as, as I was um, but this year, to me, it's really, really tight with quarterback and running back early. And I think you could even make a case for going tight end or heavy early. Um, what, what's your kind of takeaway there? There's a lot of there's a lot of uh, angles here and a lot of ways you can go. The, the first thing you really have to do if you've never played in Scott Fishbowl before is um, you really have to pay attention to the draft. Uh, I, I looked at standard deviations um, in that fishbowl compared to standard deviations on something like MFL 10. And, and basically what the standard deviation of ADP tells us is how far from a player's ADP you can expect them to go. And um, in almost any league, that's going to be a very tight range. So if a player is going, say, at the end of the, the second round, they're probably never going to make it to the fourth round, but they'll also never be in the first round. And Scott Fishbowl, after the first one and a half, two rounds, almost every player has a standard deviation of double-digit picks. So that means they have more than a, a two-round range of outcomes of where they keep going relative to their ADP, and that's just unheard of in, in a traditional league. 
with with the super flex format and the six uh, point passing touchdown scoring, a lot of people are going to value that heavily. But again, it's going to vary by draft. You'll be surprised. They'll, there's so many drafts in this league with 720 teams that there will be uh, random leagues where there are 12 owners willing to wait on quarterback. Uh, but on the flip side, people are going to see that six-point passing touchdown get really overzealous about quarterbacks, and you'll see a huge run in the first round. Um, there, there is the, the rushing first down aspect, but that doesn't outweigh what the six-point passing touchdown does, in my opinion. And what that really does is it doesn't separate the elite guys so much because it is a week-to-week um, contest, but it kind of diminishes the upside of the rushing touchdown guys. So the Russell Wilsons, the Cams, the Tyrod Taylors, get pushed down a little bit, although Russell Wilson specifically, I think, is going to pass the numbers. Um, you have to kind of take out that upside that they get from their rushing touchdowns. And then outside of, of quarterbacks, because they are going to be such a unique animal in the super flex, with three flex positions, we kind of have to look at running back, wide receiver, tight end, and see what the, uh, the relative values are. And at the very top, running backs are still going to dominate scoring. If you can get two or three top 15 or 20 guys on your roster with three flex spots, you're going to be in pretty good shape. But what this scoring system does is really shoot the tight ends up to put them even par or even above wide receivers. Um, so like you said, with PPR scoring and without consistent first downs at running backs, get, I have a very hard time investing any early picks in wide receivers. Last year, Mike Evans was the only wide receiver that scored Travis Kelsey. Now, not to say that that's going to happen again this year, but uh, by doing the exercise of going back last year and looking how this scoring setting changed the results, we can get an idea of what's going to happen when the best players rise up. And tight ends shoot up to the, the elite tight ends are – just as good, if not better, as wide receivers um, with that 200-point first down scoring. Awesome. Awesome stuff, TJ. Um, I apologize, people. He was breaking up a bit there, uh, a little bit during the episode, but a little more there at the end. Um, But, you know, if you're not following TJ on Twitter and you're listening to my show, you're doing it wrong. Uh, But definitely uh, check out rostercoach.com. Check out 4 for 4 for his articles. Both sites are well worth your, your financial investment. TJ, as always, you, you bring some of the best knowledge in the industry, and I, I really appreciate you doing a small pod like mine. Oh, uh, there, there's no small pod to me. It's always a pleasure. I'm, it, it's pretty much football season now. At 4 for 4, we always say after, um, after 4th of July is when the rubber really hits the road. We started a little early this year, but uh, – it's all systems go from here on out. So I'm just stoked to, to talk a little fantasy. Awesome. Um, uh, that's TJ Hernandez, everyone. Um, if you do follow his pod with Chris Raybon, an equally smart guy, uh, during the season, you'll know that they always kind of give you a rap song on the way in. I'm not the biggest rap guy myself, but I do have one in the pipeline here that I can lead us out with. Um, by the Fujis, uh, Fuji La. TJ, thanks so much for being on my pod. Thanks again.
that flesh gets scorned. Too bad, make you feel like you ain't one to be born, John. Tell your friends, say that hell out of my lord, chicken doors. He came dead short, stealing chicken from my farm. I'm not the dead kitchen. If you're my theosis, then I'm bringing all hate to Cecilia. Nobody cookie. My body's made a hand grenade. Girl, bless the death while he was sunk and send the razor blade. Maybe one day I'll write the horror. Black and I come to together. Jack and Nashua. See the one to see the crack babies. Be clinging to me with their own families. I'ma get them coming up when we soon done. Gun by my side just in case I got the rum. A boy on the side of Babylon trying to front like you're down with Mount Zion.